0: And this is yeah.
1: Creator Culture
0: uh, by hashtag
1: paid. Hey, I'm Danny Desatnik, and if you're new here, this is a podcast all about creators. Every week I'm chatting with incredible creators and sometimes the people that support them. I really want to understand three things. How creators are building their brands, what their brand partnerships look like, and what to expect in the future from this incredible world of creators. So welcome to week two. And if you can think of the convergence of business, tech and hip hop, only one name should come to mind. And I'm really lucky that it's this week's guest. I'm speaking with Dan Runsey. Dan is an amazing writer and the founder of Trapital, which is a media company that is home for all things related to the business of hip hop. And yes, that exists and thank God it exists. He has a newsletter, he writes essays on his site, and has a podcast. Among his readers, you can find music executives, media moguls, venture capitalists, and you know even pro athletes. This is especially a fun episode for me because I've been a reader for a while and I consider myself a fan. So let's get to the good stuff. Here's my conversation with Dan Runcie writing is definitely not an easy thing and i know that firsthand but for yourself i think the origin story is so interesting because you really do have both sides of both business acumen as well as this creative wealth or treasure trove through your newsletter and through your company trapital and if i look at the ways in which writers can get started and transact and find an audience and monetize that today versus when you and i were growing up it is so so different yet i can tell writing is almost in your blood because you're so good at it incredibly articulate tons of research in depth yet available to everyone so how did you get into writing Mm. for me it happened by
0: mistake almost and it just happened by chance I had just graduated from grad school and I had came out to the Bay to job search. I was looking for jobs in tech. I was looking for jobs doing something social impact oriented. So very different from what I'm doing now. But the thing is, I had always had an interest in hip hop specifically and the business of it and how artists are making money and looking at the business intersections of that. And I really didn't see many people writing about this type of topic on a regular basis. I remember there was a huge case study that was written about Beyonce and her surprise album drop that she'd done in 2013. This became a Harvard Business School case and everyone was raving about it. And I bought the case, I read it. And I was like, this is awesome. Why don't we have more of these? Not just from Harvard, but in general. And that was really the spark for me. So I had started my own page on Medium, had started to um, write about things that just interest me. It was more of a moonlight hobby thing. That quickly got picked up by different uh, publications that were like, hey, would you want to write for us? I mean, we'll pay you and you could do the same stuff. And I said, all right, I'm just doing this on the side anyway. Might as well get a little bit more exposure than I have now. Started doing that, started to then do it for more reputable publications. And I saw where the opportunities were heading. But then I also saw where digital media was going to and I started to see people starting niche publications that were focused on a particular topic. This was even before Substack was a thing. And I said, okay, there's something here and there are enough tools out there to figure this out. Let me go ahead and take a crack at this. And I think I could be a good person to do it. And that's how the idea for Trapital got started. And I knew that the, the business of hip-hop was my focus. It was an opportunity to double down there. And
1: yeah, that's what I've been doing now for the past three years. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm laughing because the origins of Trapital, I would have thought, I'm picturing young Dan Runcie creating children's books about Biggie and Nas and Jay. Yet it brings up this consistent theme where creators, there's always this innate love. And there's this innate passion for that lifestyle interest or industry or passion point. Yet it takes, maybe it's a serendipitous moment, or maybe it's a collision of a couple things happening, right time, right place, for that person to realize that this could be something, that this could be more than just a thought. And on your bio, I came across one of my favorite lines where you say that the business of hip hop needed its own home. And to me, the statement's amazing because there's the creative side of you here. Working in the music industry with hip-hop, hip-hop naturally comes with a sampling culture. Its roots are based in various different genres. But then you notice that it needed its own home. Someone needed to occupy that space and give it to the people. And that's that business mind of yours. So when did it go from being a potential thought whether it was conscious or subconscious to something that you started putting into action
0: thank you no i appreciate that and thanks for calling that out yeah i think for me this was something that was always interesting for me but even though i mean i've been a lifelong hip-hop fan i still never really saw the career opportunities for something like this until much later and i saw, and even when I started writing, it was still just, you know, hobby exploration, because I wasn't just writing about the business of hip hop at the time. I was writing about the intersections of culture. I was writing about the intersections of sports and the business behind things like that, specifically the NBA or the NFL, and even did a little bit of college sports at one point. But I looked at the landscape and I was two things. Okay. What am I most interested in And where is there the most opportunity for? And I felt like there were some people that were already doing some good things with the business of sports and all of its intersections. There was also some good um, work in terms of what's happening in terms of entertainment as well, but nothing that was specifically going at hip hop and Although people may think of this, okay, this is one genre of music more broadly, and this could have been about music. Well, yes and no. I think the difference though, hip-hop really is more of a it's a it's a broader culture. Like this is one of the things I always say, you know, rap is really a genre of music, but hip-hop, yes, it's that, but it's so much more, and the intersections grow and the influence grows, so it really gives me an opportunity to go deep within the niche. But by going deep, you can have so much access to all these different verticals within it, right? We can talk deeply about what's happening in the music industry, because in many ways, hip-hop is at the forefront, especially with regards to the streaming era. We can talk about what's happening outside of the music industry with all of the business and brand deals that are happening that artists are doing. And we can talk about further what's happening, how artists are using their platforms and just exploring new opportunities, whether it's in gaming or in streetwear or tech investing, All of that stuff, I think, leveraged both my skill sets and my passion and my understanding. And I was like, this has a theme. There is an intersection here. And just having a business background and having done so much work like this for every other industry, now I can do it for the one that I feel the most passionate
1: about. And that's why I wanted to label it a home. Well, you found a home. That is for sure. And it... Relating to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about this change in the digital landscape, you're now able to find your true fans and really build that community such that it's sustainable for you, right? It's the Kevin Kelly thousand true fans mentality. We can, I think we can really see it coming to the forefront and becoming available to everyone right now, especially in 2021. Yet there's a challenge that always remains and that's going from passion to business so often people can see some viral success and maybe they'll drop everything and they'll run straight for the light. Maybe others want more of a gradual rise, but there's so much noise throughout that journey that it's hard to know. To be honest, it must be like one of the hardest questions is how do you know when you're going to go from passion to business? What was that like for you? Yeah,
0: it was was a progression. It definitely wasn't like a thing that switched because... Even for the first year or so that I was writing, this was like, oh, this was something I was just doing on the fun, on the side. This was me exploring my passion. I could geek out about the topics and things that I wanted to, and I was going to do it regardless of whether someone had paid me. But then once I did start to get paid for it and I did start to see the benefits of working with editors and all those types of things, I said, "Okay, there is an opportunity to take this further." And it was really a few friends of mine that had seen what I was doing with, you know, the work that I was doing full-time and was like, "Hey, I know that you're full gung-ho with your full-time job and your career right now, but you have something here that's very unique." And if you, you know, you're talking about what you could be the best at and the things you can do, I know you could continue on your path that you have. You've obviously set things up for your career to go there, but if you're willing to jump both feet in, you could do this. And those comments stuck with me, but still didn't really resonate. But it was when I started to study and learn about how people had made the business into like what was their passion. Because I think part of it, I just didn't necessarily give myself the time to think about it. But once I did, I started to do research and I started to see what folks were doing as someone that writes Independently, one of the people that did stick out, who I think has been an influence for a lot of people that are either writing things on Substack or wherever, has been what Ben Thompson has done with his Stratechery newsletter. Seeing that, starting to follow that, and in many ways talking to him and getting advice from him on like what worked for him, what didn't, I was like, okay. There's something here. Even if I don't have the same exact business model, there is a opportunity to do this. And I think I just continue to learn more. And uh, even though I know I didn't have all the answers, I knew enough to be able to have a business plan and to be able to set aside time to make it. So it was definitely a gradual progression.
1: That's so refreshing to hear. I think we live in a time where you know, the faster they rise and they can rise really fast, the faster they fall. And so it's so encouraging to hear your mentality about how you took this gradual rise. And there was obviously a point, there was this inflection point where things really started mm-hmm. to hit off. And and as it should, you were prepared. For people that don't know, though, we kind of talked a bit of the journey. I've been a big fan and a reader for quite some time. But for everyone listening, what is Drapiddle?
0: Yeah, so Trapital is a media company that is home for the business of hip hop. This is a place where we break down the deals and the moves that the biggest artists are making inside and outside of the music industry.
1: (laughs) I can tell you've rehearsed that many, many times.
0: (laughs) It's funny, I actually don't think I've rehearsed that last part of it. That one kind of flowed nicely.
1: (laughs) No, I mean that wholeheartedly as a compliment. And it makes sense. Trapital's now been around for three years. You've slowly continued to grow this audience and this real, I'd say, fan base Mm -hmm. around Trapital. What I really like about Trapital, outside of being a huge fan of music, is the idea that you speak to three different audiences. There's hip-hop, there's business, and then there's tech. And the curve convergence of these three make me wonder, you know, how easy is it to cultivate the community when you're essentially talking to three different people around a central theme that this is the business of hip hop?
0: Yeah. So it's been a few things for me. I wanted to make sure that feedback was what I was using to inform what Trapital was and what Trapital could become. So it's two things. It's one, the relationship with the community that I have, which is more of the one-to-many aspect of it. So that was really the core in the beginning parts of it. So that was me just getting great feedback from readers, getting an idea of what resonated. One of the first pieces that I wrote went viral. And that was one of the things that I think influenced, honestly, a shift of how I went about creating the content moving forward. And I also noticed that it wasn't just people in general that were starting to sign up. It was names I recognized that had worked in this industry, people that I would have looked up to as, oh, you know, it'd be great to have the opportunity to write about so and so at some point, not necessarily having them reading my work on a regular basis and having it part of their own content diet in that perspective. So so that piece of it was good. But I think the next evolution of that was thinking, okay, what is the best way to help bring this audience together in a way where people can learn and benefit from each other or their insights. So about a year into Trapital, I did start a membership program where it was $10 a month and $100 a year and people could join. They would get freemium content, but they would also get invitations to a exclusive Slack group where um, people can talk and discuss whether it's things that are happening um, within the business of hip hop. They can discuss the articles or podcasts that I uh, created. And some of those, you know, I think still led to some great connections where people met up and had their own meetups in areas where they meet up. Oh, you're in New York too. Oh, let's connect And At one point, even before I had a Peloton, people had started the Peloton hashtag for Trapital, which was, which was quite funny. And then around that same time, I had had a few different regional meetups in New York, in LA, in Atlanta, um, here in the Bay Area too. So that so that piece of it was good. But then there were two changes that happened since then. The first, I ended up sunsetting the membership program uh, for a few reasons. I think the first was just that I saw that there are better ways that I could be monetizing Trapital itself. So I wanted to take a step back from that. But I still wanted to at least have an opportunity to try to bring folks together in a type of community type way so i've started to do a few different things hosted webinars where people can you know coalesce and connect in the group chat and um being able to build and make connections there um started to at least people that were giving good positive feedback on particular articles could highlight them in the newsletter itself. So I wanted to do this because I still feel like community building is hard. And I think there's only so many things that you can do well as a person that was largely a solo team with a few different freelancers helping with particular things. So I decided to scale back and think, okay, what are the things that work well? I think the meetups work well. I think Slack can have its pros and its cons. Um, you know, I think the the larger something like that grows, it can be a bit you know, difficult, especially if you're not really being on top of the community moderation. But I think as I continue to grow and expand things, it's something I want to continue to find new ways to do. And especially now that, the, you know, people are getting vaccinated and people are meeting up in person, being able to do in person things is definitely on the list to add to soon.
1: I can imagine. And it's so encouraging to hear you talk about wanting to build the audience, but more so the community and the community within a community because of the focus on live events. But from the conversations that I've had with creators in the past, so often it's noted as like a double-edged sword, right? Where Mm -hmm. you have, you have to appease the audience to grow the audience, to retain them. But on the other hand, you really want to do what you love, because if not, there's a chance of burnout, which is a real issue right now. And on another podcast, I heard you say you wanted your newsletter to read like a friend. How did you come to that decision? Uh, I think it took a few months because
0: I first started and I felt like a lot of it was experimentation. I almost wrote a lot of the travel newsletters almost with this like case study style mentality when I was writing it. But then I think over time, I said, no, this can be a bit more relatable. So let me try a few things. And part of it's kind of testing it out. It's almost like you are someone that is putting material out, seeing, okay, what do people resonate to? What do people not? What do people bring up? And knowing that you can't rely too heavily on that because you also know that there are impacts and influences that your content will have and people just will not, you know, reach out to you about it because not everyone that reaches out are the folks that find it useful. And I think I've realized that just given the fact. That I have a newsletter that does have high engagement, and it probably has high engagement for many people who I've never heard from. Like, there's and I think about that myself, right? Like, I have many newsletters that I love. I haven't necessarily always reached out to the person to be like, "Oh, hey, you know, I love this." Like, not everyone is 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 like that to that extent, but. For me, being able to find that relatable voice, it was one, just getting better as a writer and finding a way to feel confident about you know, the words that I was saying and in a way that still had that authoritative tone, but felt like it was f- still relational, right? And by being able to come across as a friend, you know, someone that is an informed friend, I think it leads to the type of conversations that people would have, right? Like if I've had plenty of topics where I'm talking to friends about what business decisions so-and-so should have made or what deal they should have made, especially now more than ever. And we're making jokes. We are saying these things, but it's still making sure that we're delivering value and having something insightful to say. And I said, yes, that is what Trapital needs to sound like. So yeah, I think it took me a few months from the beginning, both of just getting my own feel for things, but I do think it eventually got there. And at least I feel like the response has been good because that's what I think has kept the engagement and the interest where it is. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I love this. It almost makes me feel like your professors from business school would be smiling. You're talking about reiterating. You're talking about testing. And I can tell you really see yourself as a product, which to any creator listening out there is such a powerful mindset to have because you know the mindset is more than just the newsletter next week. It's really the business in the next five years, but also so powerful for brands, brands, and marketers who potentially want to work with you and partner with you because they can tell the the mindset is so strategic and is so, so strong. And as it stands today, you have your podcast, you have your newsletter, you have your essays. What else makes up the empire of Trapital today? Yeah. So those are the main things I have. So I have, um, so I have the weekly newsletter
0: that I put out. And for the most part, this is a memo. So this is a Monday memo that I put out. It covers three topics that have happened in the past week or something that has been bubbling that's been happening. And it's boom, here is the thing that's happening. And here is my take and thought on it. So this is less news. This is more a analysis and it's really giving you, okay, what, what you should know, why it matters. And is there some type of importance to it and a link to either learn more about it, whether it is a link to something that I've written in the past or just a good resource from elsewhere. So that's the newsletter. Um, the essays are deeper dives. These are evergreen topics that will be relevant for people to go back to. And these are good both for lead generation. They help spread well. They help raise the awareness for Trapital, but can also be good things that I think are insightful for people to go back to time and time again. Some of my most popular essays that people still discover now were written one, two years ago. Like That's the good stuff that I enjoy and I want to keep going. And then the podcast, which is the third product, those are an opportunity to really connect with the people who are the leading executives in this industry. So the writing is more so, hey, here's my take on what's happening. The podcast is, let's talk directly with the people who have made these decisions and who are making them. And it's been great, been able to talk with many of the people that are executives at all of the streaming services, major record labels, uh, partnerships, hip-hop artists themselves. So it's been a really good way to balance that. And I think each of them do intersect in a way where it helps build the brand, build the content, and ultimately strengthen the bond and feel that people have for Trapital. Well,
1: Dan, I can tell you this, so many conversations that I have with people in the music industry that are a fan of hip-hop or enjoy that business background, your name comes up so, so often. So the bond that you've created is incredibly strong. And with your experience in the music industry for the past number of years, you've been able to see the rise of the independent artist. And by independent, I mean an artist that doesn't need to be signed to a record label in order to achieve such success because of the many tools that are out there. The the hip-hop artist, Russ, being one of the best examples right now. And it makes me think that there's such parallels between the rise of the independent artist and the rise of the content creator. And you had a really great tweet a couple days ago where you said, today's content creators have the lowest barriers, the best access to tools, and face the highest levels of competition. So in your opinion, for content, writers, but also just creators in general. What lessons can we take away from the the rise of the independent artists that can be applied to these creators?
0: Yeah, this is one of the things that I do enjoy about Trapital. right? So much of the work that I do and the way I build it is so relatable to artists themselves. So if I'm researching what someone did, whether it's someone like Nipsey Hussle or someone else in the game there are so many of the things they have done and how they've gone about pricing, how they think about building their product, building demand that is relatable to exactly what I'm doing. And I think you see this on the more business model side as well. I look at two companies. One is United Masters, which is a music distributor. They charge 10% for artists, um, the top line revenue to distribute their music to each of the major um, digital stream providers. So that's Apple, Spotify, and so on. But you look at Substack, And it's literally a very identical and similar model, but it's for independent writers who want to distribute through email to get their content out to everyone. So there's so many similarities in terms of how both artists and how writers are building and thinking about their craft. I think in a lot of ways, though, hip hop is even further ahead of the curve on this, because the topic and the push for independence has been a much more Focus point of hip hop culture more than it has been. I'd probably say in the past two years that we've heard more and more about it for writers. I think in the past year or two, you're starting to see more companies like Forbes or Vanity Fair or even New York Times explore what does our independence branch look like? How can we still attract those writers who want to branch out on their own? So they're trying to start their own hybrid models to do these types of things and giving writers advances. Our record labels have been giving uh, artists advances for years to do this type of things. And you're seeing record labels now try to partner with companies like United Masters and other distributors so that they can still access the talent. That wants to remain and own, keep ownership of their assets and have some independence. So it's this convergence. And I think writers are really following along this path where people see the upside of what these institutions have made off of them. And especially if you are a rock star or if you are a high performer at this place, you're probably not earning your fair keep because your work in some way is subsidizing the people that are also part of your roster, whether you are an artist or writer that aren't necessarily as successful as. As you've been. So having this type of movement, I think in hip hop, we've seen that there still is a attraction f- of certain people to gravitate towards record labels, but there's always going to be the people that want to be independent. And I think now, going back to that tweet, they do have more resources, but because the barriers are down, there's many people trying to, so it's going to be just as competitive. And I think the same thing we're now seeing with Substack and all these other tools. There are plenty of great examples of people that are at the top of that leaderboard, but there are so many others that I think, you know, haven't hit thousands of subscribers or whatever the benchmark is. So it's a similar type of dynamic
1: there. So many parallels, but I need to ask about TikTok. The way that TikTok is influencing the music industry right now is, I think, unprecedented. We've never seen it before. The fact that so many creators are able to blow up songs with their viral videos that then put these songs and these artists at the top of the charts But it's also so interesting. You had a great tweet that I think summed this up all really well, where you said that TikTok is the new MTV. And I think it is so spot on. But from your perspective, where do you see the music industry, TikTok, and creators playing a part in the next, let's say, three to five years?
0: What I think we see now is that TikTok has made it easier than ever for people to break out. And I do love that comparison, yeah, that I said that TikTok is the new MTV. The difference though, of course, MTV was run by gatekeepers and TikTok does not have the gatekeepers. So that's very different. So it leads to this dynamic where people can truly become overnight sensations in a type of way where there wasn't this buildup before for it and now you have most of the major record labels either looking or investing in tools that are tracking how often is someone's sound or song being used in other tiktok um, clips and then that is them running their data and running their analytics to see okay who are the people that we want to sign And in this past year, TikTok had released a report, and they said that major labels had signed over 70 artists that came directly from TikTok. And just a few years ago, major labels had signed probably around 700 artists. So you're looking at 10%, and that was just this year. So that could be even more moving forward. What I think may be a bit challenging, though, is that it is such a line between or there's such a fine line between what makes someone be a big success on tiktok versus what makes someone be a big success as a record label artist and by that i mean a record label artist the main goal is someone that can sell records especially now if you are creating pop or hip-hop music someone that can get tons of streams for an album and therefore you are able to sell that, whether it's through merch or whatever it is, you can just sell ideally if you're a superstar, Hundreds of thousands of albums in that first week, right? So like when you put your new music Friday out and they, and they collect everything that week, you are at the top of the billboard charts. On the other hand, though, you have some stars who just to do well on TikTok, because they've kind of mastered the game to do that. And there's a way to succeed in TikTok without necessarily being someone that people want to buy music from. And I think this is kind of a dynamic of social media where because of these tools and all these things, there is a bit of a separation and a divergence of fame and talent. This is actually something that um, I know Steve Stout, who is the um, CEO of United Masters, has talked about quite a bit. And not that someone that is, oh, you got it there, Teddy of America, perfect. And it's not that um, someone who is successful at TikTok isn't talented in the same type of way, but there is just a different way of how someone can succeed. And I think an example of this, I think this person is very talented, but I think Meg the Stallion is actually a good example of this. Biggest star on TikTok this past year. Every one of her songs, especially the big ones, have become TikTok sensations. But when her album came out, her album didn't necessarily sell as much as you would think for someone that won a ton of Grammys just a few months ago, someone that dominated the news and was on the cover of Time and just had all of these big accolades compared to some other people, even on her own label that aren't household names, like Gunna, for example. Gunna had his debut album that came out in 2020 as well, and it sold more albums than than Meg Thee Stallion. And I think, of course, there's a few things there. I, I mean, there's a few different dynamics there. I do think that women in hip hop people don't necessarily buy their music as much. So I do think that is a bit of a challenge there. But even even outside of that, I still do think that her as an artist and artists like her that can be successful on that platform... And maybe them having a major label as the main focus of their business model isn't necessarily the only thing that they can do. There's so many ways that artists can make money. So even if that is part of her mix, maybe it's a smaller part of the mix because they still get plenty of marketing support that has helped made her successful. That was how she is able to then get the deal that she has with Rock Nation. So it makes sense. But what I think TikTok really does at the end of the day, it helps highlight the opportunities for artists to have that different mix of their business. And I think the more that people realize that and don't just try to follow this set path. No, just because you blow up doesn't necessarily mean that you may become the next Drake. And I think Drake is kind of a rare case where he dominates on TikTok and he sells a ton of albums, but for many other artists, it may be more likely where you have a heavy balance on one or you have a heavy balance on the other. And I think that's the beauty of a platform like that. But I do think it may just require a bit more intentionality, especially as people are starting to gain traction and they want to figure out where they sit in the ecosystem.
1: I love that word that you said, intentionality. You're so right. And maybe I say you're so right because I agree with you. (laughs) But intentionality from the artist to the creator perspective, but then also intentionality from a brand perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to see TikTok. It's part of the zeitgeist. That's where so many users are. That's where any video can go viral. And so there's a lot of money and a lot of attention on the channel. The thing is, I don't know how much of that attention is long-term compared to just trying to capture what's short-term and without a real plan. And I'm going to go back into my vault of Dan Runcie tweets you said that companies in every industry want to leverage hip hop culture. Few understand how to do it well. And the thing is, I think you can almost take that statement and extrapolate it to not only leverage hip hop culture, but leverage content creators and this rise of the content creator. And then a lot of the essays and also memos that you write, you cover brand partnerships, you cover Travis Scott and McDonald's, you cover Cash App and just the world of hip hop. And so from our resident expert here on brand partnerships, what should brands be looking for when they align themselves with whether it's artists or whether it's content creators? Yeah, I think there's a few things. One of the things I often stick to is that partnerships should feel
0: authentic in a way where even if there wasn't money involved, you would think that that artist would use that product or that there would be some type of connection there, right? Right. And I think in a lot of ways, this is what makes someone like Travis Scott very versatile. Because I know you mentioned McDonald's earlier, we would believe that yes, you know that is what he would order at McDonald's, and he would, you know, want to dip his fries in barbecue sauce or whatever it was. Or we also believe that he would be a gamer. That's why something like PlayStation works. And I know that he now can have a bit of that like everyman vibe that makes him able to collaborate with everything from McDonald's to Tenant or what have you. But so much of that, I think, is necessary to feel in a way that, you know, truly feels genuine. And I think this also extends to things like, you know, political endorsements as well. Like, you know, I, I think we saw a lot of that in 2019 and 2020. Like, for instance, I still think back to... um Who was it? Uh, two chains had done an endorsement for Joe Biden. And I thought it was funny, but it was spot on because I think we could see two chains feeling like, you know, everything he's done in his brand is aligned with that. No different than someone like Killer Mike or Cardi B aligning with Bernie Sanders. It's, 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 it's on brand for them. So I think so much of that carries through with brands as well. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing. And I think this applies a bit more to some of the brands that may not be as consumer focused. There should still be some type of part where the content or the theme of the connection still feels authentic in a way where it's memorable, where people feel connected to it. And I do think that, um, for instance, the State Farm ads, I think, have been a good example of this where, you know, insurance isn't sexy, but they still found a way to make it cool where, okay, you can have Chris Paul and Cliff Paul, or you can have whoever there, like, if you can find a way to leverage the artist brand, even if you know that you don't necessarily have one, but you're willing to let them ride with it in a way that feels genuine, I think those things work out. And just to give you an example of the ones that don't work out. So in 2019,
1: you read yeah, my mind because I was about to ask what bad looks like.
0: Yeah. So I think bad looks like you're trying to co-opt a movement or a, um, or a vibe and it just doesn't sit right. With not just with people, but it doesn't feel like it's genuine to like what that brand is doing. Because for instance, in 2019, that was when Hot Girl Summer had blown up, right? And you saw all of these brands that normally don't really have the vibe of Megan the Stallion. Like they don't have the kind of clothes that Megan the Stallion would wear. They don't have the kind of, you know, aesthetic that is about her. And they're all like, okay, Hot Girl Summer, come here. It's your July 4th sale. And it's just like, no, like, that you know, I don't want to put any of them on blast, but there's plenty of them. But that is an example of one where it's like, no, that I I, I don't think that quite necessarily works out. On that point, I think there are also like political endorsements that uh, that I saw that just. Did it make sense? Like, for instance, um, I think it was Juvenile had uh, performed uh, Back That Ass Up for Tom Steyer's um, presidential campaign um, right before he had dropped out of the race. Like, everyone knew that was just for a bag. I thought that was funny. That's why everyone ended up making fun of it, right? Um but yeah, I think I think I think tonality is big, and I think too. Uh, j- j- just to speak a bit more about this, this one is a bit more nuanced. But I think a lot of times artists themselves, especially when they're starting brands or they're trying to partner with something young, I think there's a thought that oh, people like this artist, they have tens of millions of Twitter followers or wherever it is, this thing will work. And it doesn't always work that way. Um, you can look at Rihanna, I think, as an example of this. We can talk about her in a way of like what works and what doesn't work. One of the reasons that her Fenty Beauty and Savage Fenty products have worked as well. And, you know, now I think at least Savage Fenty is worth over a billion dollars and gotten a bunch of fundraising is because one, she was already extremely marketable in 2016. I think the NPD group had listed her as the most marketable celebrity based on this index of all the celebrities they had. But That still wasn't enough. They also needed to have something that made her brand stick out in a way that felt authentic to her and was something that was truly solving a need in the marketplace. And her brand for both of them was inclusivity. It was access and making sure that she did that through the sizes of the lingerie and the products she was offering, the skin tones, and making sure that it was affordable for the people that looked like her, the people that looked like all different shades of women. And it was such a rare thing that you didn't see in cosmetics. And that's one of the reasons why both of those companies were successful. But on the flip side, Her partnership that she had had with um, Louis Vuitton, LVMH to start that um, Maison, they ended up deciding to, well, they said they sunset it, but in so many words, they ended up shutting it down after you know a year and a half, less than two years. And it wasn't a vibe that fit with everything that we understood Fenty to be. They were on there trying to sell like $700 hoodies and all of these products. That price point and all those things falls very much in line with what you would expect from Louis Vuitton. But it doesn't fall in line with someone that is trying to push affordable inclusivity, as although it is a different brand and a company, it's this broader ethos of what people understand Fenty to be. So when I saw that that brand didn't work out, I wasn't surprised. And that's where it's like, even if you are Rihanna and you are the most marketable celebrity in the world, that doesn't protect you from risk. And it, And you still need to have successes. And I think that's why um, the the Fennie Beauty and Savage Fennie have been as successful as they have been.
1: Wow. You just gave us a, I don't know, like a three or four minute masterclass on brand partnerships. I feel like you should be the one writing Harvard Business Review cases, not the one studying them. (laughs) I want to recap this though, because it's so important what you're saying. So the three positives and two negatives. Three positives is one, it has to feel native to the artist or to the content creator. Their audience has to believe that they would actually use the product or the service. The second thing you said was memorable, which also so important in a day where there's so much noise and it's hard to see that signal. Third is creative control. The creator or the hip hop artist needs to be able to take that brand or that messaging and mold it and tweak it in a way that feels like it's coming from them and feels like it's part of their usual messaging, which I loved. Then the two negatives you were saying is one is lack of tonality. Either the brand is working with a hip hop artist or a content creator and they just don't understand the space. And because they don't understand the space, there's a high risk for saying the wrong thing and maybe acting in a way for lack of a better term, is in kosher. And the second thing you mentioned was a misalignment in both maybe values, in the product, in the price point, in the messaging. Wow. Okay, I am waiting. When you write your book, I am waiting for the chapter on brand partnerships because <laughs> you put this perfectly. Let's end this off on a lighter note. Okay, so both you and I know that this conversation would not be complete if I didn't ask you about your top five. And by that, I mean your top five favorite hip hop or rap artists and or groups of all time. Oh, yeah, my, my top five. So my top five is this. So
0: Lauryn Hill, Drake, Kanye West, although he frustrates me, he's still in there um Lil Wayne that was just such a important era in time that I think was formative and he just brings up so many memories and and Jay-Z there's just so many lyrics and insights that he's had that just gravitate and stick to me to this day um so yeah those are my those are my five I mean depending on the day you ask me there could be some that may sneak in there like you know I think in, in in that same like Wayne era, like Jeezy was someone that, you know, I love those, you know, I love Thug Motivation 101. So like he's someone that could slide in on the right day. But no, those are my five.
1: Amazing. Well, nothing left to say other than it has been a pleasure having you on. Oh, thanks for having me. This was great.